0: you are about to enjoy a presentation recorded at the 2021 michigan conference camp meeting held at cedar lake michigan we pray that the lord will bless you as you listen father in heaven we thank you for bringing us safely back together again this afternoon as the rain falls outside we pray that the holy spirit may fall upon our hearts May we receive your word, help us to think clearly, rationally, and with the illumination of your Holy Spirit. And we pray above all that we might help hasten your return through our life, through our lives, through our witness, through our managing of our, uh, the resources that you have placed into our care. So guide us now this next hour as we continue our study. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So, this is my last chance to plug my blog, savingthecrumbs.com, and also audioverse.org, where you can find other resources, not just my seminars, but uh, thousands of other spiritual media available there uh, that you can find for free. Now, we're going to pick up right where we left off yesterday. Yesterday, we concluded by looking at some economic signs of the times. And this is a quick review. We talked about globalism, globalization or globalism as a precursor to the universal Sunday law, how the powers, economic as well as political powers around the world, will coalesce around, uh, the, around Babylon and they will coordinatedly uh, enforce a Sunday law around the world. And we talked about how natural disasters, we, we know this is going to be the case, that there'll be natural disasters. How it creates and foments turmoil that leads to economic and political consequences. And then we talked about inflation, how Ellen White describes the condition before the end is a period of time in which the prices of, of goods and services, particularly of food, is rising rapidly. And then we talked about severe wealth inequality, which leads to social unrest and also how there is an ideological underpinning that somehow is uh, entangled with this type of class warfare. Now, I also need to make one quick clarification. Yesterday, after the presentation, one of our audience members here came up and and mentioned something that I thought was very uh, important that I want to clarify. Yesterday's presentation, I believe, may have left left you with the impression that the final economic collapse, which we read about in Revelation chapter 18, occurs immediately after the passing of the Sunday law, almost as if one happens one day, and then the next day everything collapses. Well, that's not my intent, because you remember the day before that, we talked about the Sunday law timeline, where we broke it down into a a mild and a severe phase of the Sunday law. And so... The financial collapse, the final economic collapse, is when the seven last plagues begin to fall upon Babylon. That's Revelation 18. That's at the tail end, all right, of the Sunday law process. It's in the severe phase. And so when the Sunday law initially is passed, there is yet a period of quote-unquote peace, at least of relative quiet before things ratchet up. And so I, I wanted to make that clarification National apostasy does indeed follow, or sorry, national ruin, excuse me, that's what I meant to say, follows national apostasy, which is the Sunday law, but it may not occur immediately in succession. Still the mild and severe phases of the Sunday law occurring before the final judgments. The Sunday law merely is the point of no return, right? That's what I discussed, I think, two days ago. So I just want to make that clarification. If, if you missed those presentations and you have no clue what I'm talking about, you can review the recordings that are available online at the Michigan Conference YouTube channel already. So the topic of the day. Occupy till I come. Jesus said those words, but what was the context around which he gave that statement? This is found in Luke 19, verse 11 to 13. It says, And as they heard these things... He added and spake a parable because he was nigh to Jerusalem and because, notice carefully why he's telling them this parable, because they thought that the kingdom of God should immediately appear. Does that sound like some good Adventists in the audience that day? (laughs) They were looking at this and they said, oh, wow. Then the coming of the kingdom of God must be just around the corner and almost as a counterbalance to the tendency for us humans to overreact, Jesus then tells this parable. He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. So the context of the statement when Jesus said, Occupy till I come, was specifically spoken to a group of people who were feeling their blood blood pressure rise and their their pulse rate quicken because they thought the kingdom of God is right here it's about to happen but Jesus sort of had to tap the brakes a little bit to bring them down to reality not completely to get them off you know to to not not, not no longer look for the kingdom of coming a uh, kingdom of God coming but to Give them a balanced perspective, if you will, to temper the overreaction that might have occurred. So we talked about all of these signs of the times, we talked about the Sunday Law, and of course, there seems to be a lot of signs swirling around us, we can agree with that. But yet, as a counterbalance to a tendency to perhaps get, let our emotions get the best of us, we need to remember Jesus' counsel to occupy till I come. So another statement to this regard in Evangelism, page 221, uh, Ellen White writes this, You will not be able to say that he will come in one, two, or five years. Neither are you to put off his coming by stating that it may not be for 10 or 20 years. We are not to know the definite time either for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit or for the coming of Christ. So you notice the balance here. Jesus is coming soon. But we need to also be cognizant not to be time setters and not to base our life life behaviors and and decisions on perhaps human devisings and human interpretations of what may or may not occur. So I want to share with you this exchange. This is found on Last Day Events page 42 between a brother in the church with Sister White. And I find it very insightful. Let's see what their conversation looked like. One brother said to me, Sister White, do you think the Lord will come in 10 years? Haven't we all had this conversation? Maybe even here at camp meeting. We've talked about, we may have said, I don't really know if the Lord is going to tarry longer than 10 years. I don't know if my daughter is going to be able to go to college and get married and, so, and such and such things, right? We, we have these conversations because we long to see that day. But notice Sister White's response. What difference does it make to you whether he shall come in two, four, or ten years? Why, said he, I think I would do differently in some things than I do now, or than I now do, if I knew the Lord was to come in ten years. What would you do, said I? Why, said he, I would sell my property and begin to search the word of God and try to warn the people and get them to prepare for his coming. And I would plead with God that I might be ready to meet him. How do you think this conversation is going so far? (laughs) We continue reading, same page. Then said I, this is Sister White speaking, if you knew that the Lord was not coming for 20 years, you would live differently? He said, I think I would. And here's where Sister White gives the rebuke. How selfish was the expression? that he would live a different life if he knew his Lord was to come in 10 years. Why, Enoch walked with God 300 years. This is a lesson for us, that we shall walk with God every day, and we are not safe unless we are waiting and watching. Is there a lesson to be learned in this conversation between this um, unfortunately misguided brother and Sister White? The lesson for us today is... How are we arranging our lives in light of the nearness or potential delay of the second coming? Are we making decisions differently based on what we project might happen in the end times or the nearness or the distance of the second coming? The principle she's saying is we should live and act and make our decisions according to the same principles no matter when Jesus is coming back. Amen? And not base our actions on the nearness or the delay of his coming. I think that's the principle here. And I think it's easy for us sometimes as emotional creatures to see the news, right? Especially after a year of lockdowns and COVID and pandemics and economic crises and, and and. and, 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 and unrest in our cities and things of this nature, it's easy to panic, but that's not God's way. A couple more statements to buttress this point. Mind, Character, and Personality, Volume 2, page 470 says this, Don't make a time of trouble before it comes. You will get to it soon enough, brethren. We are to think of today, and if we do well the duties of today, we will be ready for the duties of tomorrow. Okay? Okay? The duties of today, keep that word in mind. We're going to see it again right here in uh, Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 383. Many will look away from present duties, present comfort and blessings, and be borrowing trouble in regard to the future crisis. Borrowing. We talked about getting into debt. Now, this is one debt I don't want to get into. Borrowing trouble, right? This will be making a time of trouble beforehand, and we will receive no grace, for any such anticipated troubles, we are to wait on our Lord. Uh, wait on our Lord. Jesus will be an ever-present help in every time of need. Are we catching the essence of what Sister White is talking about? To be ready for the time of trouble ahead of us, the best way is to be faithful to the duties today, to live in accordance to the principles, to be faithful to what we are already shown. The principles that are already revealed and not run before God looking for something else to protect ourselves for the time of trouble ahead. So this leads us back to the question of our day. So then how do we occupy? Jesus says, occupy till I come. Live in accordance to the, the revealed will of God that you already have in front of you. And he's speaking to those who believe that the kingdom of God is imminent. What are we to do? Well, we are to follow what we've been already told. So, we're gonna discuss just five things. And this, obviously, is not exhaustive. The Spirit of Prophecy has plenty of counsel for us to apply. Not exhaustive by any means. But in light of what we discussed yesterday and also the day before, and you'll see we're gonna tie in a lot of the principles we've discussed earlier in the week as well, we're just gonna highlight five things today. And the first thing, how to occupy till Jesus comes, how to be faithful to our duties today, is to simplify our lives. And you can probably guess I would say that coming from a guy with a blog called Saving the Crumps. We had a whole hour earlier this week talking about gathering up the fragments. And this is the reason why. Because the less we need to live on, the less our lifestyle has inflated, the easier it is to live with a spirit of contentment and the easier it is to go through a time of trouble. Country Living, page 32, it says this, It is no time now for God's people to be fixing their affections or laying up their treasure in the world. The time is not far distant when, like the early disciples, we shall be forced to seek a refuge in desolate and solitary places. Instead of spending our means in self-gratification, we should be studying to economize, to gather up the fragments, to save the crumbs. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 5, page 152. It is now that our brethren should be cutting down their possessions instead of increasing them. We are about to move to a better country, even a heavenly. Then let us not be dwellers upon the earth, but getting things into as compact a compass as possible. So this reminds me of the, uh, the session we talked about when to sell everything. We need to be laying our possessions on the altar, being willing to let it go whenever God asks when and how much to sell. And here's the thing, in a practical sense, we, we talked about inflation yesterday, and that's really one of the conditions that we should expect at the end of time. A lower rate of consumption in our lifestyle helps to offset higher inflation. I mean, that's pretty logical, right? That's common sense. The less you spend, the less you will be affected when prices of goods and services inflate. And so, if we, if our lives have continued, have just grown and mushroomed and inflated to keep up with the Joneses, right? So to say, when high levels of inflation hits and sweeps across all industries, we're going to suffer the most because to take our lifestyle down is going to be much harder than for those whose lifestyle has already been kept at a minimum. So that's number one. Number two, what have we already been told? By a country home. Country Living, page 32. Again, this is what it says. As the siege of Jerusalem by the Roman armies was the signal for flight to the Judean Christians, so the assumption of power on the part of our nation in the decree enforcing the papal Sabbath will be a warning to us. A lot of words, simply put. When the Sunday law is passed, Right? It will, be, it will then be time to leave the large cities preparatory to leaving the smaller ones for retired homes in the secluded places among the mountains. In light of what we discussed several days ago with the mild and severe phase of the Sunday Law, we can kind of see that reflected in this statement, can't we? Initially, when the Sunday Law is passed, that is the sign to leave the large cities But then there's also a fleeing to the solitary places among the mountains at a later date. And that roughly maps out to a mild and severe phase of the Sunday law. But in either case, what we're talking about is leaving the large cities. That's the context of the statement. Last Day uh, events, page 118. It says, more and more as time advances, our people will have to leave the cities. For years we have been instructed that our brethren and sisters and especially families with children should plan to leave the cities as the way opens before them to do so. Many will have to labor earnestly to help open the way. But until it is possible for them to leave, so long as they remain, they should be most active in doing missionary work however limited their sphere of influence may be. So there are many principles in this one statement. The one is that we have been told for a great long while that it is better to situate our families outside of the cities, particularly for those of us with young children. But this statement also tells us that we ought to wait until the way is open before us. Now, we're not to be sitting idly because the statement makes it clear we may have to labor earnestly to open the way, right? It may take some effort, but not everyone is to just drop everything and make a rash move out of the city. And if we are to remain in the city, we are to be doing missionary work. We're going to come back to this point a little bit later, but I do want to just introduce that concept into your minds right now. So what are the benefits in light of the end times? Well, number one, there will be unrest in the end times, unrest in the form of natural disasters. We read yesterday about how whole cities will be swept away. And even in in light of you know the scientific community. There's a lot of research and sort of almost a um, a panic. I don't think that's too strong of a word. the The term existential crisis is thrown around a lot about climate change and rising sea levels and increased storms and fires and things of that nature. And they will disproportionately affect the cities. And we talked about civil unrest. Riots, bloodshed, a civil war type of scenario happening, and that will happen disproportionately in the cities. And in the past year, we can know that if there is a pandemic that sweeps across the globe, it will again disproportionately affect the cities. This is not new to any of us. I think you know what I'm talking about. And another benefit is the country is a better environment for raising children, particularly. Uh, In light of a lot of the things that are being taught in public school educations and the the corrupting influence of the cities that we've been told about, number three, country living should prolong the ability to conduct ministry. And this is an important point. We're going to come back to this. It's not just to escape the troubles, but it should enhance our usefulness for God. But now in a financial sense also, real estate is a good hedge against inflation, It's a hard asset. It's not cash sitting in the bank earning no interest and having its purchasing power eroded in an environment of high inflation. So having a piece of land can be good as a hedge against inflation. And here's a little secret for you. Low interest fixed rate mortgages are less risky in times of high inflation. That might sound counterproductive or counterintuitive, but think about this. Cash, the value of cash goes down as inflation goes up. The dollar is devalued or debased. But if you've taken out a fixed rate, low interest mortgage, and interest rates are in the historical lows, your mortgage payments are fixed, meaning it's not going to go up. And you have purchased a fixed asset, real estate, that theoretically and historically has inflated with inflation. So, you have have an asset that's going up in value, but your dollars are going down in value, and you have a fixed low interest rate. So, you're paying off an appreciating asset with cheaper and cheaper dollars. You understand how the math works? So, this is still not to say that it is, you know, not to say that debt is good in this scenario. All I'm saying is it is less risky in a time of high inflation. Low interest fixed rate mortgages on fixed assets. And again, this is a statement we shared earlier in this week. Sister White here in uh, Selected Messages, Volume 2, page 30. She's writing to her nephew, Effie Belden, who was a young man at this time. She says, you might have had, even from your limited wages, means in reserve for any demand. It might have been invested in a lot of land, which would be increasing in value. But for a young man to live up to the last dollar he earns shows a great lack of calculation and discernment. So Ellen White gave some financial advice to her nephew to invest in a piece of land. And she's certainly given us counsel that it is a good idea to own a piece of property outside the city. So buying a country home, a couple of points here. Even if we are not buying a country home directly, it still may be worthwhile to start building equity in a starter home first during a time of elevated inflation. And this is partly because of what I just said about the appreciating asset the, the value or the, the, the lower risk of taking out a mortgage at the current time. And also, I will remind you back to the presentation where we talked about how to buy a house. You remember that? In many cases, it is better to have equity building in a smaller property than to simply go for a big property. And if you're not able to afford the down payment for a big property in the meantime, that may make that strategy even more valuable because inflation may outpace your ability to save for a down payment. And point number two, this is actually right in line with what I'm saying, equity in a home should keep pace with inflation better than cash in the bank because cash is losing value while your property is increasing in value. And number three, there are unique tax advantages for real estate compared to other types of investment assets, and I put in parentheses for now, because there are rumblings in the financial world, questions about whether there will be further uh, tightening down and closing of tax loopholes with real estate investing in the near future, but in the meantime, they are still there. And so here, we need to ask the question that has been on so many of your minds. Uh, I've gotten this question a lot this week, so let's talk about it. What if we're in a housing bubble? So yes, on one hand, we have counsel to move to the country, have a country home. But then on the other hand, we look at the housing market right now, and it is absolutely bananas. And so I'm just going to share if we are in a housing bubble and if we're not. Sort of just, let's just think through both options. If we are in a housing bubble, mortgage rates are still likely to rise from here. Okay? In fact, just last week, the Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell had a press conference in which he, he openly stated that the Federal Reserve will start raising interest rates. He said two interest rate hikes in 2023 right after the midterm elections. He just came out and said it. And of course, the market reacted and all of those type of things. But whatever the case may be, the Federal Reserve, one of their mandates is to have a healthy rate of inflation. That's one of their jobs. And maintaining uh, low unemployment is the other mandate. And so, he's coming out and signaling to the market, you better get ready. Inflation is here to stay a little longer than we had originally anticipated, and as a result, we will have to raise interest rates. So, in application to what we're talking about with mortgages, mortgage interest rates will also rise. We can more or less count on it now. Number two, if we are in a housing bubble, and we go and we buy a home, right that's the 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 risk calculation is what if i buy a house and the market collapses if we buy a home we will still own a hard asset that won't go to zero right we may have paid a bit more than we would have liked but a a home is not going to go to zero because you're going to have the home you're going to have the land you're going to actually be able to live in the thing it's not like buying a you know a stock or a bond that could or or cash in the bank that the value can actually go to zero So number three, even if inflation cools off, and this is actually in relation to the question, if we're in a housing bubble, there is almost this assumption by some people that is going to be like the 2008 bubble, that prices are actually going to collapse at some point. Well, that may not necessarily be the case, right? If inflation cools off, that doesn't mean prices drop. When we say inflation has, has dropped, all we're saying is the rate of increase has dropped. But the prices can actually taper off or plateau or just grow at a slower rate. So there's no guarantee. Yes, perhaps prices may crash and it may be localized in various different places. But there is a chance that the prices may just stay where they are and just not go high as high uh, as quickly. And then number four, We have to remember that there are other benefits besides strictly the financial return on investment when it comes to buying a home, such as actually having a place to lay your head and a place to raise your family. And we're going to talk about some other benefits as well. So it's not merely a financial decision is what I'm saying. There are other aspects to consider. Now, what if we're not in a housing bubble? Let's talk about that for a moment. Well, we already talked about point one. If we're not in a housing bubble and this inflation is here to stay for a while, real estate is a good hedge against inflation. So just from a pure financial management perspective, as an investment asset, real estate is a good hedge. Number two, when we lock in a low fixed interest rate, that means we will repay our loan with devalued dollars in the future. We already talked about this before. And point number three, if we are not in a housing bubble, then, and and we're we want to buy a house, but we're just going to wait it out, say, then we risk both higher prices and higher interest rates in the future because we already know interest rates are going up, and if inflation continues to rise, prices are going to keep going up. And then here's number four. We're still going to have to live somewhere. So the assumption is we're still going to be renting. So if we don't buy, we're going to be renting. And what happens to rent? It keeps pace with inflation. Year after year, the landlord is going to keep ratcheting up the rent and we're going to be hit with a triple whammy. We have rent rising here which reduces our ability to save for a down payment over here. And then the price of homes are going to keep going up over here. So the amount of down payment needs to continue to get bigger and then interest rates are going to go up. So we're looking at a tenuous and fairly challenging situation with the housing market. I'm not going to lie. And so... When I look at the situation, it's a matter of what are the trade-offs. There is no one silver bullet solution. But the trade-off is looking at your particular situation, your particular needs, you have to weigh which of these risks are going to be more worthwhile for you to avoid. And do you want to know a little dirty little secret about the housing market? The dirty little secret, it's not such a secret anymore because there's a Bloomberg article that just came out recently talking about this, is that wealthy investors, such as private equity firms in the United States and elsewhere, they are piling into real estate at the current moment, particularly single-family dwellings. Why are they doing that? Because they want to hedge against inflation. And this is partly why housing prices have gone up so much. And there's another concurrent market dynamic, and that is COVID. COVID has completely upended the work-from-home type of dynamic. It was already moving that way. A lot more remote workers, people can work from home uh, because of COVID. And now a lot of even big tech companies, they're saying you can work from home permanently now. And so office spaces as realist, you know, commercial real estate, such as office spaces, is just crashing where single-family dwellings are just skyrocketing because all these people who had to work in the city, who, wants to, who had to be close to the office, they're like, I can live anywhere I want. So let's move out farther out of the city and let's just buy something. And they see nice country homes with big properties and they say, oh, I want to buy that because, oh, that's so cheap. And then they just bid up the price because they make the big money from the city, but now they can move out to the country. These are some of the additional dynamics that are happening. So in a kind of an interesting turn of events, the worldlings are moving out to the country first, as if God didn't tell us where we ought to go to begin with. But here's a statement we read yesterday that I want to bring back to mind. Manuscript Releases, Volume 5, page 305. In India, China, Russia, and the cities of America, that's really what my focus is, thousands of men and women are dying of starvation. The moneyed men, because they have the power, control the market. We're talking the private equity firms, investment firms now. They purchase at low rates all they can obtain and then sell at greatly increased prices. This means starvation to the poorer classes and will result in a civil war. There will be a time of trouble such as never was since there was a nation and at that time shall Michael stand up. So that article I was referencing earlier, Bloomberg Magazine, you can look it up online. It's entitled, America Should Become a Nation of Renters. And what that article is suggesting, I don't know if they are predicting this or they are merely describing what is inevitable. I don't know. They're suggesting that the cost of housing will go up so much that it will be no longer feasible for most Americans to be homeowners. And the, what the idea they the promoting is that that will be okay and that that's a good thing. And I'm thinking to myself, do they know something we don't know? Or are they setting us up, pre- preparing us for a world in which private ownership of homes is no longer the accepted norm in this country? And this, the most important thing I have to say, is that this is contrary to what Spirit of Prophecy recommends that we do. And it seems plausible, at least in my mind, that the devil will seek to create such circumstances to make it difficult for the saints to obey God's counsel. Wouldn't you say so? And God intended us to live outside the large cities. And so, having said all this, it might sound like, you know, the sky is falling. Boo-hoo-hoo. <laughs> this is so sad. What are we going to do? But I want to share a testimony with you that I just heard from a friend of mine right here in the Michigan conference campaigning this week. A friend of mine who works here, he's in Michigan, he called me a few months ago with this exact question, is this a housing bubble? Should I buy a home? Recently had to relocate for another job. What should I do? It's so expensive. I, like every house I look at, before I get the offer in or after I get the offer in, somebody outbids me. They're putting in, you know, $20,000, dollars $40,000 bids above asking price. It is insanity. Like, what should I do? We talked a little bit, and I shared a few of these things. And so I didn't really know what happened until I talked with him here over lunch one day, and he said um, he and his wife, they had given up. They tried and tried to get into a house, and it was hopeless, it seemed. They said, oh, we're just going to give up. Maybe we'll just save up a bigger down payment and we'll see what happens later. And then, when you know it, they got a tap on the shoulder from a church member and said, hey, I know so-and-so who uh, is going to be listing a house that's not on the market yet. Would you be interested? He's like, oh, well, let's go take a look. Turns out it was a home with more land than they were expecting. Backs up to like a, some really big park, eight miles of hiking trails right behind them. A place for a garden and at an affordable price. And they closed two months ago. And I think they're going to, because of whatever reason, they weren't able to move in right away. I think they're moving in right after camp meeting. So why do I tell you that story? Is that, yes, we look at the financial world. We look at all of these signs of the times. We might get discouraged. But we serve a God in heaven who is alive and well. And if we follow his counsel, if we are living in accordance to his will, He can work for us in ways that are beyond our comprehension. So we need to keep our eyes up and fixed on Him, but we need to be mindful of the principles by which we ought to live. Amen? Point number three, this is one of the benefits of having our own property, and you don't even need to have a lot of property to learn to grow our own food. So point number three is to learn to grow our own food. And this is the statement we read yesterday. Maranatha, page 181, The Lord has shown me that some of His children would fear when they see the food, price of food rising. And they would buy food and lay it by for the time of trouble. Food is going to be an issue, we're told. And so what's the solution? Adventist Home, page 141. Again and again, the Lord has instructed that our people are to take their families away from the cities into the country where they can raise their own provisions. For in the future, the problem of buying and selling will be a very serious one. I think we've all heard this statement. And another dirty little secret from the finance world. Do you know that many of the richest people in the world, people like Bill Gates, people like Warren Buffett, they are the largest owners of farmland In the United States. The rich people in the world are buying up farmland. Maybe they know something we don't know, or maybe they're simply catching up with what we've already been revealed, that the issue of food and provision will be an issue in the end times. Country Living, page 18, this is one of my favorite statements to this effect. Many are unwilling to earn the bread by the sweat of their brow, and they refuse to till the soil. But the earth has blessings hidden in her depths for those who have courage and will and persevere to gather her treasures. Fathers and mothers who possess a piece of land and a comfortable home are as kings and queens. I remember in academy, I had to work on the farm. I was in a boarding academy, and working the hot summer, sweat dripping down my face. And I remember I heard this statement in chapel, and I'm like... That makes no sense. I do not feel like a king or a queen out here right now. But all of a sudden last year, COVID swept across the land. There were shortages of food. You remember when, you know, the, there were lines, you know, and, 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 and grocery stores where shel- uh, shelves were bare because supply chains were cut off. And of course, toilet paper, you know, that was a big thing that was missing. Cities went on lockdown. All of a sudden, there was a sense of panic. People were saying, you better store up food because you may not be be even allowed to go to the store because of the virus. All of a sudden, I began to understand this statement a little bit more. And I want to show you some evidence of that. So all of the next few pictures I'm going to show you were all taken during the pandemic, okay? And uh, of course, it's a great excuse to show off my, my daughter. So here we have elephant garlic, as big as her head, sweet potatoes, all all grown and raised and harvested during a pandemic. These are our, This was our pea garden, and, you know, we, we did the little, you know, exercise counting how many peas we picked, and of course, we enjoyed eating them too. And I also mentioned a few days ago, I, I grow a lot of figs, and so here's my little fig bug, little Miss Figgy, I call her. And she collects our figs. We go out every day and we have our nice fig plate for supper each night. And there you have it, uh, one of our rainbow fig plates. This is what it looks like to live as kings and queens, in my humble opinion. And in the end times, we are told what is already going to take place. And so that was point number three, to learn to grow our food. And I will also mention this. Even before Moving out into a country, you don't need to have a giant, you know, multi-acre type of farm to start learning how to grow your own food, right? Container gardening is a thing, you know, just have a little grow box or or some of those types of things. It's a great thing to get started to learn. All right. Number four, we need to keep moving here. Start a business. That is another uh, piece of advice in light of the times in which we live. Why do I say this? not just any business, but missionary entrepreneurship. The Apostle Paul was an entrepreneur. Did you know that? He was a small business owner. What was his his small business? What did he sell? He was a tent maker. That's right. And he made it clear in various places that he could have, and he had the right to live off the tithe. He was a gospel minister. He could have, but he wanted to leave an example of lay ministry. And so, I'm speaking to us now as lay people. If you're a pastor, you know, yes, there are counsel, obviously counsel to dedicate your attention to, to the flock of God and all of that, so I don't want to get our, our messages crossed here. Speaking to the lay people, notice what it says. Council, uh, Country Living, again, page 22. The lay members of our churches can accomplish a work which, as yet, they have scarcely begun. None should move into new places merely for the sake of worldly advantage. But where there is an opening to obtain a livelihood, let families that are well-grounded in the truth enter one or two families in a place to work as missionaries. So this is one of those things about, how do I know when I can move out in the country? Well, you need to be able to make a living to support your family. She makes that clear. But what's going on in our environment today, in the economy today, is that it is becoming easier to earn a livelihood anywhere. What am I talking about? Well, I mentioned earlier the work from home arrangements. The people of the world are already figuring this out. There are also all sorts of online businesses. The internet has unlocked an entire industry and marketplace. The digital economy and these types of things create more opportunities for people to earn a living without having to be tied down to a certain location. And so with this in mind, there's more flexibility to move out into the country. And we know that COVID has simply accelerated this trend that has already been happening in the workplace. And again, in light of the inflationary pressures that we are seeing, by being in business offering goods and services, we place ourselves on the receiving end of the rising inflation rather than on the paying end. Just the example is, if you, would you rather be a renter or would you rather be the landlord when inflation is going up? Would you rather be paying more and more rent every year or would you be the, like be the one collecting more and more rent every year, right? That's a very simple calculation and this is the mindset of a missionary entrepreneur, putting yourselves in a position, yes, you're still serving the community, you're providing a good and a service to someone rather than merely being an employee. And this self-reliant independence, again, may prolong the ability to do ministry and that's ultimately the point. It's not to earn, you know, unlimited sums of money, it's not about getting filthy rich, it's to put ourselves in a position of greater independence to be able to be useful to God for a longer period of time. So point number five, this is our last recommendation, uh, things that we have already been told to do. Increase our systematic giving. Now, we've all heard the saying, you can't take it with you when you die. But did you know That you can send your treasure on ahead. This is found in the Spirit of Prophecy. Testimonies for the Church, Volume 3, page 249, says this: every opportunity to help a brother in need or to aid the cause of God in the spread of the truth is a pearl that you can send beforehand and deposit in the bank of heaven for safekeeping. There will be no inflation, no stagflation, no hyperinflation, no deflation of our assets in heaven. Amen? No financial collapse. We don't have to worry about that. The bank of heaven is the safest place to put our money. Review and Herald, July 1, 1890 says, the only safe place to deposit our treasures is in the bank of heaven. Every deposit made in this bank will accumulate abundant interest. Isn't that great? All upside, no downside. You will be laying up in store for yourselves against the time to come. There appears to be an actual bank in heaven, right? As Adventists, we believe that there is a sanctuary in heaven. Looks like there's a bank there too, and I don't know why we need the the treasures up there. Maybe it'll be for our building our country homes out there or or whatever it might be, but that is the best place to invest our money ultimately. So laying up our treasure up there, just a few reminders, refreshing our minds, some of the principles we've discussed this week. Remember that the Lord may call us to sell at any time to give to his work, and it may be well before the Sunday law. And also, selling will primarily be to advance God's work and not to merely preserve our assets. But even if God doesn't call us to give everything right now, in order to be faithful in giving 100% then in the time of trouble, we must be faithful with our 10% now, right? The generosity muscle has to be exercised. And also, in light of inflation, right, I'm actually I'm in charge of a ministry. I have to manage a ministry budget. I can save for certain ministries, God's ministries can do more with today's dollars than with debased dollars later on in the future because inflation cuts both ways. And so if we haven't gotten in a habit of systematic giving, being mindful of, you know, being sacrificial in our support of God's work, now is a good time to prayerfully ask the Lord what we ought to do. Now, a few words of caution. We talked about moving out in the country, and I just want to make sure I give some balancing statements here. For God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And second select messages, page 361, says this. Those who have felt at last to make a move, meaning move to the country, let it not be in a rush, in an excitement, or in a rash manner, or in a way that hereafter they will deeply regret that they did move out. I'm concerned that there is a bit of panic porn on TV and things that people just immerse themselves with. They, they might get, you know, too many things shared on their Facebook feed that gets them into all a huff and, and they're panicking, like, we got to get out of the city now! And then they leave and they're like, oh, uh, what do I do now? And then they end up in a worse state than before. That's what she's talking about. Again, same, same passage, it says, Take heed that there shall be no rash movements made in heeding the council and moving from Battle Creek. Do nothing without seeking wisdom from God. But promises to give liberally to all who ask and who upbraideth not. All that anyone can do is advise and counsel, and then leave those who are convicted in regard to their duty to move under divine guidance and with their whole hearts open to learn, oh, obey God. So we we can advise and counsel each other, but this ultimately is a decision between the individual and their families and with God. Okay, so let's not be too rash or too uh, too pushy about this. Country Living, page 25, it says this, but some rash given advice may be given. Only get out of Battle Creek, notwithstanding, there is nothing clearly defined as to what improvement they will make in spiritual advancement for themselves or others in doing this. So apparently, in some cases, rushing out of the city may not result in spiritual advancement. We need to be mindful of that. So let everyone take time to carefully consider and not be like the man in the parable who began to build and was not able to finish. Not a move should be made, but that movement and all that it portends are carefully considered. Everything weighed. To every man was given his work according to his several ability. Then let him not move hesitatingly, but firmly and yet humbly trusting in God. I I mention all of these statements because I actually have spoken with individuals who unfortunately have been bitten with the panic bug. And they just want to get out of the country, out into the country so bad that they made some very ill-advised decisions that they, I'm sure, will live to regret. I'll just give you one example. And this is not the worst offender, uh, but I think it's the safest one I can share. This one individual, she said, I, want, I, I think, I don't remember if she bought a house or was about to buy a house out in the country, and she was so thrilled about it, but she had no work. She had no livelihood. She had no job. So she was commuting 70 miles one way every day to work so that she could, quote unquote, live in the country. I kindly but firmly advised her, you do not live in the country. You merely sleep in the country. And so this is the type of thing that we have to guard against, emotionalism, no rash movements, and we need to take the full body of Ellen White's counsel, amen? She counsels us, yes, it is good to move out there, but do it carefully, measuredly, not like the man in the parable who began to build but was not able to finish. We need to remember the point of it all. It's not merely for self-preservation. It's not primarily for the protection of our financial assets. It is not salvation by country living and organic gardening. Because guess what? That is salvation by works, if we think that way. It is for enhancement and prolonging of our ministry. And part of that ministry is for our children, I must say, to raise them in the fear of the Lord. And we must keep all things in balance. And I will just say this. I I don't consider myself, you know, a homesteader. I only have one acre, but I have, you know, trees and probably more trees than I should have and a garden. And, you know, I have lots of things to keep me busy. And sometimes there is a danger there to be so busy taking care of the garden because God told us to, that when opportunity to serve the Lord comes, we might choose to neglect the greater work. You understand what I'm saying? We need to make sure to keep the, the obligations and the priorities in balance. There is a world to win. And it's not merely to you know, give ourselves comfort. Because if we get so preoccupied preparing for the end times, that we neglect to actually give the end-time message, then Satan still wins. Let's keep that in mind. And I'm going to go even further out on the limb here, and I'm going to say something that might be unadvised, but I believe it to be true. It is better for us to remain living in the city while winning souls than to move to the country if we are to isolate ourselves from all contact from the world. If we move out to the country and we are not better soul winners, I'm not sure why we would be there. I'm going to just leave that there for now. You can ruminate on that and do with it what you will. I'm not sure I'm going to finish right at 4.30. So can I go over just a little bit? This is our last day together, right? Is that okay? I have a few FAQs I want to just wrap up with. These are commonly asked questions I'm assuming are you know may come up to me anyways. So I'm just going to address them for everyone. So here are a few common questions that I think people ask in light of everything that we've talked about. Some questions, one is, should I still save for retirement, my kids' college, et cetera, or just invest in general? I remind you of the statement 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 8. But if any provide not for his own and especially for his own house, he has denied the faith and is worse than an infidel. We have a moral obligation to provide for our families. So the question is, is investing and saving still a good idea? Is what are your needs? Are there needs that you have in your family that you must provide for? And in addition to that, what is your time horizon? How long are we talking about? What is your risk capacity and your risk Tolerance, meaning how much cash do you already have, how much do you already have in investments, what kind of income are you pulling in, how old you are. There are all these variables that can factor in to whether this is a good idea or not and how much to save and how to save. But if there are defined financial needs in order to provide for a family, then discipline, saving, and investing is almost always a good idea. However, How we do that saving and investing is determined by our time horizon and risk capacity and risk tolerance. So it's not everyone does the same thing. And we always must have an exit strategy in case it is time to sell. And what do I mean by exit strategy? It means we need to understand the process, the cost, the time involved to liquidate whatever assets or investments we're talking about. And ultimately, there's no one-size-fit-all approach. So if your situation is complex, it is worth discussing with a financial planner. And hopefully one that, is, that fears the Lord and one that understands our end-time perspective. So another frequently asked question in light of all this talk about inflation is what about gold and precious metals as a hedge? This is a very conventional knowledge, right? Conventional investment advice. Inflation, you hedge it with gold or precious metals. Now here are my, my opinions, my two cents. It's worth what you pay for it, all right? Good and gold and precious metals have generally been reliable in hedging against inflation. However, if we're looking in the end time final crisis scenario, there is no market on the other side to sell it back into, right? Historically, in previous markets, there might be a market dip and then we come out on the other end. But if we're we're talking about the final crisis, this is the end. So, there is a question as whether that is the best use of our funds, but if you're looking at more near term, it might be a different uh, calculation. But there is also the fact that gold has not always kept up with inflation in all circumstances, and another dirty little secret about gold and precious metals, there are costs just to hold that asset. Because if you have physical gold or, or silver or platinum, whatever it might be, you have to store it somewhere. If you're going to store it, you have to make sure that it's secure, and then you have to have insurance on it, and then how are you going to transport it? Do you trust, are you going to just like put it with the USPS, <laughs> are you, or the UPS guy, drop it at the front door? Are we really going to do that? So there are costs involved, and then there's the, the headache of, you know, what if someone steals and that kind of thing? And also gold and precious metals really is useful to be viewed only for downside protection. They are not a productive asset. It's not like a business or farmland or something to that effect. It doesn't pay you interest, for example. And in a time of growth, they underperform other uh, productive assets as well. And I say this last line tongue-in-cheek, would you rather have food or would you rather have gold bars in the final crisis? You just have to think about that. If there is a market collapse, which we are describing here, and people are going hungry, I have a feeling I know which they're going to prefer, right? But having said that, is it worth, is it inappropriate for everyone uh, to consider gold? No, I think it may be worth considering for those who have sizable assets, sizable portfolios that are already well diversified in other more uh, robust, if you will, asset classes. It may be useful for those people, but for people who are just starting out, I don't think gold and precious metals would be where we start. All right. And the last question I want to share with us tonight, uh, this afternoon, a question that we got, I think, on the second day. What about Bitcoin? Now, I'm not going to lose you in all the techno jargon, all right? Don't worry. But one of the theses that people have uh, posited, had advanced for Bitcoin, is that it has a lot of qualities like gold, only a digital version of gold, therefore making it a good hedge For inflation so what about that theory well I am going to direct your attention to my blog my most recent article is on cryptocurrencies are they legitimate and I break down not just bitcoin but several other classes of cryptocurrencies and hopefully gives you a little bit of a primer on on what it is and what's all the hype about and and I I give my take on what what it's all about okay so that is my cop-out so I don't have to give you all the backstory and what they are but in summary I do believe that in theory, in theory, uh, Bitcoin, particularly Bitcoin, not all cryptocurrencies, but Bitcoin, has qualities that should make it a good hedge for inflation. However, it's only 12 years old. It hasn't been in inflationary times. It's only existed during a time of low interest rates. It's, it's during a time when the stock market has only gone up. We haven't had a bear market and, uh, or big bear market uh, during the time that Bitcoin has been around, really. And so it hasn't truly been put to the test yet, so I think the jury is still out. That's what I think. However, I am positive on cryptocurrency and blockchain technology in general. I see it as sort of a web 3.0. It can really increase the innovation in the internet space in many ways, but it is difficult to promote it as a form of investment to the average person right now. And there are a gazillion reasons why, which I outlined in my article. It's not that the technology is, you know, a lot of people say Bitcoin is just a scam. It's just a scam. Well, I'm not so sure it's just a scam, but there are a lot of scammers in the industry of cryptocurrency, so it is worth being careful. And finally, Having a currency in the world that's not controlled by any central authority sounds intriguing in light of our end-time globalized economy, which we've talked about in prophecy. Will it prolong the ability for freedom to continue? I don't know. It remains to be seen. And I am very intrigued, and you know I will be keeping my eye on it, but I have certainly no definitive answer for you today. So I know this is sort of a cop-out answer, uh, but I think the jury is still out and we're still early Uh, for Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. But I did want to mention that because I figure at some point someone's going to be wondering uh, that question. So our last statement. Our last statement to really wrap up our whole week together. Evangelism, page 221. His followers are to be in the position of those who are listening for the orders of their captain. They are to watch, wait, pray, and work. As they approach the time for the coming of the Lord. That sounds to me like occupying till he comes, doesn't it? But no one will be able to predict just when that time will come. For of that day and hour knoweth no man. So how ought we to be? What state should we remain in? Let's remain faithful in obeying God's revealed will. Let's do what he's already shown us. And let's carry out faithfully our present duties today. Let us occupy till he comes, and may we be faithful until that day. And I take it back. I am one minute early. How about that? We are finishing on time. So let's bow our heads together, and let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you so much for the practical counsel you give to us. We are not following cunningly devised fables, but we have the more sure word of prophecy to guide us. Lord, may we also take to heart the counsel not to be emotional in our decisions, particularly as we see signs occurring so rapidly and with such intensity around us. It's easy to get frightful and to be anxious. Lord, you have told us so many times to fear not, for you are with us, and you will be with us till the end of the age. And so may we move deliberately, measuredly, based on principles that you have clearly revealed. May we rest Our actions on a a plane, thus saith the Lord. And may you guide us in our life decisions. What to do with our money. Where to raise our children. Where to move our home. What to do for career. Where to place the surplus of means that you have blessed us with. How we ought to invest. How we ought to use our time. And all of the other seemingly mundane but the little things that make up the sum of life. Help us to be obedient and faithful in all of it. And may we be ready for you when you come, and truly may we do our part to hasten that day. We thank you, Lord, and we pray now these things in Jesus' name. Amen. To listen to more of these presentations, you may visit the audio archives at misda.org audio 2021 or search for Michigan Conference Camp Meeting wherever you get your podcast.